Hello, uh, my name is Ban Chimer. I am the founder of Inyalinya uh, Basiddet organization. Inyalinya Basiddet is feminist and uh, a feminist organization focusing on domestic worker in Lebanon. Because of the coronavirus and the lockdown, many domestic workers are suffering uh, behind closed door and uh, they can't even feed their kids. Because of that, we uh, are uh, gathering food and distributing home to home. Uh, but we want to do more and we set up uh, also GoFundMe um, accounts. If anyone is interested uh, to uh, donate, we'll be grateful. And you can find uh, this link to in uh, our uh, Twitter, at Inyalinya uh, DWU. Uh, thank you so much. So this is a conversation with Lebanese British journalist and editor Zahra Hankir. She's the editor of the award-winning, best-selling anthology, Our Women on the Ground, which features 19 women reporters from the Middle East and North Africa. Zahra spoke to me about the formation of this book and how she started following some of these reporters in the context of the 2011 uprisings throughout the region. I also asked her about how women reporters in the region navigate gender-based discrimination to get the stories they want told, as well as her reflections on the politics of representation in the Western world. As usual, you can follow the podcast on Twitter at FireThesTimes and on Instagram at TheFireThesTimes. And if you like what I do, please consider supporting this project with only $1 a month on Patreon or on BuyMeCoffee.com. And you can also do so directly on PayPal if you prefer. Patreon is for monthly, PayPal is for one-offs, and BuyMeCoffee has both options. Thank you for your time. journalist based in London, soon to move to New York. Um, I'm also an editor. Um, over the course of my career, I focused mostly on culture in the Middle East and uh, the book that I edited uh, last year, Our Women on the Ground, uh, features 19 essays by Arab women journalists who uh, speak about their experiences uh, covering the region. So let's talk a bit about our women on the ground. Uh, you mentioned in the introduction of the book that you've been collecting, in a sense, the names of these reporters on the ground uh, who were covering the uprisings uh, since 2011 as they were happening. So in some ways, we can say that the, the book or the, the, the formation of the book really started in one way or another in 2011. Can you talk a bit about that process and you know whether you personally can sort of trace the book with uh, the 2011 uprisings to a certain extent? Sure. Uh, actually, I would even say that the um, the idea for the book started well before that in the sense that I'd always been quite acute to the notion of women and specifically local women having a certain level of nuance in the mm. way that they covered the region that was absent in other narratives. And that is rooted in my own personal experiences as a female Lebanese journalist who covered Lebanon for a number of years for a local publication, which I shall not name for political reasons. <laughs> <laughs> In retrospect, I don't love that I worked there, but I actually used to cover um, culture and social issues for that publication. This was way back in 2007, 2008. So I did cover 
um, political assassinations and politics and so on at the time um, in the aftermath of the assassination of Rafi al-Hariri and then mm. the 2006 war. But uh, I used to find that I was drawn to stories about women. And um, there was one particular story that I wrote that I feel very strongly about in the sense that I don't think I would have been able to write that story or report it had I not been uh, a Lebanese local woman who speaks the language and who understands the culture. So it was about, it's a bit of a difficult subject, but it's about hymenoplasty. And that's the restoration of the hymen. Mm. Um, after sexual intercourse and as you can imagine it's an incredibly taboo subject incredibly loaded taps into so many social cultural religious uh, issues and uh, I had been aware at the time that many women were getting this um, procedure done and, the, and people were not really talking about it and so what I did was I chose to report the story and I spoke to numerous women off the record and also to gynecologists about the subject and as someone who comes from a conservative background myself, I understood deeply how hesitant these women were to speak about these issues. But I was able to earn their trust and to get very close to that story. And to date, I mean, I wrote this story, what, 14 or 13 years ago. To date, I'm most proud of that story because I feel that I approached it sensitively and with nuance and was able to to tell the story, you know, with, with great uh, understanding when it comes to the cultural backdrop. And it was a story that actually for years people would email me about and uh, specifically women and thank me for, for writing that story. And I think that really opened my eyes to this notion of, you know, an, a local woman who speaks the language, who understands the culture, can tell different types of stories. And as someone who has a foot in both the Western world and in the Arab world and is familiar with both media landscapes, I felt that there was a gap in the sort of mainstream dominant narrative, which we're exposed to, which is, you know, all the big Western publications. And therefore, um, over the years following that story, I was always drawn to stories by women, by local women and about women. And I think in particular during the Arab Spring, there was so much incredible coverage coming from those women on the ground, many of whom are in the book. Um, and, you know, I felt, OK, why do we always um, hear from Western correspondents who spend time in the Middle East, who write these memoirs or nonfiction narrative books about their experiences doing that work? Why are we not hearing from the women who are doing that work on the ground, who are telling these fascinating stories, who face unique challenges, who often risk their lives to tell those stories and who don't get as much attention historically, uh, at least. I think they're getting more attention today, thankfully, even though there's more work to be done. But my goal really was to amplify those voices, to hand the mic to those women and to to learn about the struggles that they face um, to bring us that incredible nuance um, and Hopefully I succeeded at that. That was a long-winded way of, of telling the story, but obviously the Arab Spring played a huge role in that. And personally, I was working as a reporter for Bloomberg News at the time. I was based in Dubai and I was kind of observing the coverage from a distance and feeling that gap in the narrative more than ever. But also personally feeling that, um, you know, I wish that I was on the ground myself doing that work. And similarly, that we needed, in my view, to have more diversity in mainstream newsrooms. I felt that was missing. So that was another sort of, I would even say, um, underlying reason I put it together is to advocate for that diversity in uh, mainstream newsrooms across mm -hmm. the world. You mentioned at some point something that, 
uh, I think you, you had also mentioned it on the Beirut Banyan podcast, which I, I listened to uh, recently, um, mm-hmm. which is that the coverage of the region seems to have gotten a bit more nuanced than it was before. And I'm probably not everywhere. And, you know, that that is a very it might be a contentious statement. And it's not to say that uh, everything is fine and perfect. But I'm wondering if we can talk a bit because it's very easy to forget where we were before, right? Like it's very, it's actually very easy to forget how catastrophic the coverage was really, uh, for example, in the aftermath of the 2003 invasion mm-hmm. uh, and what um, uh, Middle Eastern journalists uh, and uh, I, would, I would assume really like especially Middle Eastern women journalists, the sort of things that they had to contend with before that now seem to be at least more difficult or more um, like the persons who would be doing that kind of coverage would would have more a more difficult time getting away with it not that they wouldn't get away with it uh, quite often and too often can we talk a bit about your perception of how the media landscape in that respect has changed over the past few years i'm really glad that you bring this up because while i think there have been strides forward and and we are seeing more diverse newsrooms and we are seeing more women bylines particularly women from the region in uh, mainstream media coverage as we both know last year the pulitzer uh for international reporting was awarded to two egyptian women along with a with a uh, yemeni male for their coverage of yemen um so there have been improvements at the same time i think that the problematic coverage that has persisted for years, if not decades, still remains in certain pockets. Mm-hmm. And I would actually say it's been heightened recently, um, in particular coverage of Lebanon um, and the coronavirus crisis and this idea that, you know, let's give a let's give a newsy spin to the same story, the same tired story. Mm-hmm. I often try to kind of steer clear of critiquing um, media coverage of the region because my goal is more to amplify the voices of locals rather than to take down other voices mm-hmm. and to advocate for a more inclusive narrative. But I think that the problem is still there, the root of the problem, which is, you know, I, I actually, in, in my introduction, I, I removed this sentence and in some ways wish I kept it in there, but I refer to it as journo-orientalism, <laughs> which is kind of like an extension of Orientalism, really, that has persisted and been quite pervasive in journalistic coverage of the region, which is essentially a boiling down of very complicated, nuanced politics into an accessible narrative for the average Western reader. So in a way, I understand the motive, but the result is still problematic and... You know, even if you look at um, the Pulitzer Prize that was that went out recently to a, um, uh, a feature writer uh, just a couple of days ago um, was a New Yorker piece mm. about Guantanamo. Um, sorry, about Guantanamo, I think. No. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It was a New Yorker piece about Guantanamo. And uh, while it was incredibly well written and Ben Taub has done great work, it does kind of bring to bring to mind this idea of who gets to tell the story. You know, the subject of the piece had written a book about his experiences and, and that book was in part rehashed in the in the piece that won the Pulitzer. And it makes you think like who when are you really listening to the story? Are you listening to it more if a foreigner is telling it to you in a mainstream media publication? Are you more alert to that story if it's written by a foreigner or by a male, you know, who's who maybe has not spent as much time in a particular um milieu and has at the same time 
gone in there and wrote and written a definitive account of what's happened in a particular situation. Why are we giving that person more attention or why are we celebrating that person more than others? And I think at the root of that is a, is, is a very uh, uh, complex structural problem within journalism and within the idea of narratives. Who dominates the narrative and when are you listening? And my goal here has always been to say, listen, that is not a complete narrative. We need to hear more from locals. We need to hear more from people who are on the ground and closer to the story. So while I think we have, you know, kind of given more attention to women who are on the ground, I still think the structural problems are there and I still think we need to address them. And the only way to do that is to continue to advocate for diverse voices and to prop up those voices. And yeah, I do want to hear from women on the ground and I want them to be writing memoirs. So it's not just in the journalistic space, it's within the publishing space mm-hmm. as well. So I wanted to expand it on that level. And, um, and to be quite frank, there are many women who are Arab on the ground who, who tell the same story in a different way for Western media publications. So you might see two bylines by two people based in the same country um, and the local is telling a different story or focusing on a different aspect of a particular crisis or conflict. And that is very visible today. Um, I do want to say that this is not to name specific names or publications or to call out particular journalists. I do think that Uh, Western journalists do incredible work in the region. But what I do want to say is that there is a structural problem here. And that's what I'm trying to point to rather than specific people or specific prizes even. It's really not about that. It is about looking at the narrative and asking ourselves who gets to tell the story? Why are we paying more attention to certain people and certain names and certain publications over others? And, And questioning that. And that's what I was trying to do with this book is to say we need to look at these people as well and these stories as well so i hope that kind of answers your question Mm -hmm. it's a long-winded way of saying there have been you know steps forward but but i think the structural problems are still there oh no no, absolutely and so i I was going to ask this in the end but because you brought this up um the the, so the the question of representation so you know the 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 idea that essentially uh because for example i'll just speak for, for myself here but because i am you know from Lebanon, uh, in certain contexts, because I'm also part Palestinian, because of, uh, well, de- depending on the dynamics uh, of the situation, I'm usually asked certain kinds of questions that other people wouldn't wouldn't get. And the questions themselves, I don't feel are necessarily the problem. Uh, well, I get it depends, obviously, on what the questions are. Sometimes they're just uh, genuine and someone just wants to know and they, they don't know. So they ask in a genuine way. And in, that, in those situations, I try and, you know, be... Uh, patient whenever I can and you know uh, mining my own limits as well I can't I can't explain everything to everyone but uh, the the politics of representation are very tricky and I don't I don't um, you know I'm not, I don't expect you to necessarily have the answer so to speak I'm just curious as to you mentioned for example um, previously I forgot where but that you know the, the book the good immigrant um, uh, was was on your mind or that you you thought about it like it's, it was partly mm-hmm. p- partly an inspiration and for those who don't know the book the good immigrant is a book edited by Nikesh Shukla one of the authors actually Musa Kwonga uh, was was a guest on on the podcast a few weeks ago and it's about uh, the good immigrant so the idea of um, being an immigrant somewhere or of immigrant background whatever that means usually it's a racialized concept and uh, having these expectations on you 
for um, women journalists from the Middle East and North Africa, I would suspect that there is pretty much like basically all of the dimensions as one can imagine uh, just thrown on them. So like there is the fact that obviously they're women. There's the fact that they may come from certain regions that are uh, currently, so to speak, in the news. So Syria would be one, Libya, Yemen. Uh, and there could also be the fact uh, the fact that their countries are not in the news. And you know, that, that comes with a whole uh, set of problems in itself. How have you... How, what are some of your thoughts on this? Have you thought about the, the risks, in a sense, of, uh, well, it's not really a risk, like the tension of representation, the, the limits that this can pose, the uh, unintended consequences that it might have? I'm sure like it's one of those uh, things that, as I said, don't really have an answer, but that uh, nonetheless, um, in my view, should be asked. If, uh, did, did that make sense? I feel like I was rambling a bit. No, it does. I... I struggle with this a lot because I struggled with it personally in my career. I mean, as, uh, let's say, a Middle Eastern uh, Arab Lebanese woman with Egyptian ancestry, Syrian ancestry, ties to Palestine, you know, all of that nuance, um, I feel very strongly about coverage of the Arab world. And, and at the same time, I was born in the UK during the Lebanese Civil War. Um, so I'm, I'm very uh, switched on when it comes to representation um, in the Western world of conflict in the Arab world or the Arab world at large, and then also being a female from the Arab world. So all of those things are things that I think about constantly. And my goal had always been to kind of work from within large media organizations to make change, you know, to... to um, to have this positive attitude towards making change um, when it comes to the narrative. And I was up for a job actually at a, at a major uh, media corporation without naming it. And I reached the final stage of the interview and the job was then given to uh, a Western male journalist who had never lived in the Arab world and didn't know um, any Arabic. And the job was a Middle East editing job and I felt highly qualified for it. And that was problematic for me and, and I struggled with how I reacted to it because I didn't want to feel bitter but at the same time I felt there was a there was a profound representation problem there where what does it mean to be qualified when it comes to covering the Arab world who gets to have the mic when it comes to speaking about the nuances of the Arab world does it even matter if you're from the Arab world to me the answer is yes hence this book project and um I do think that there's a lack in um, in awareness and in representation and in how important it is to have people who know the story well and who are close to it and who know the language. And I, I like that you brought up The Good Immigrant. I have mentioned that that was a source of inspiration for me when it came to this book because I think that that tackles the subject of representation head on without at all hesitating in making the political statement that there is a representation problem here. We need to speak about our own communities. The narrative needs to come from us, you know, hashtag own voices, all of that matters. And we should never be tired of it. We should never be tired of saying that there are stereotypes. Um, I actually, at some point, was criticized by a, by a journalist for saying that there are stereotypes um, when it comes to Arab women. I mentioned this in my introduction in the book and I was someone said something like it's so cliche to say this like oh god we're so <laughs> bored of this 
But at the same time, we can. I don't think Edward Said was ever bored, you know, <laughs> said, said, oh, let's just forget about Orientalism. It's so cliche to talk about Orient. I don't think Ta-Nehisi Coates ever says, oh, you know, how cliche is it to talk about representation of black bodies? And, you know, I, I think we need to always be fighting the fight and always alert to the fact that there is a representation uh, problem and always fighting that representation problem in as... Um, fruitful a manner as possible that will have impact and we can use our platform in different ways i mean you're using it with this podcast mm -hmm. i used it with my book um rather than being for example bitter about not getting a job i really wanted i took that energy and i said okay let me do something positive with it while at the same time not turning away from the fact that there is a representation problem absolutely and you know uh if i can take a sec to say that you did a wonderful job on this <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I, ho I hope I answered the question. I feel like I went in no, so many did, directions. No, you did, you did, you um, did. Okay. The, uprising in the recent uprising in Lebanon started in October uh, 17th. And um, already, like, on the first night, we saw the what was ended up being called, like, the feminist wall. So, you know, uh, uh, women protesters essentially forming a physical shield, like, uh, standing essentially as human shields between protesters and security forces. Uh, to uh, prevent any outbreak of violence. One of the uh, protesters who was interviewed, she said something along the lines of, we know that in this sexist society, uh, publicly beating women is seen as a bad thing. It's aib, it's a shame. Uh, and emphasize obviously on public, uh, because domestic violence is very much uh, a thing. And uh, for me, the word domestic violence is quite the understatement, but you know. Um, mm. Basically, that um, women activists and I would uh, and he I'll I'll, I'll I'll let you expand on this, but I would assume that women journalists to a certain extent are also very well aware of this, that they know that essentially that there are certain quote unquote advantages and I'm putting them in quotes here that, for example, they are they might be able to speak to a certain politician. They might be able to speak to a certain militia leader in the case of Syria and Libya. We've seen this quite a lot. Uh, because they are women and because essentially the the person they would be interviewing essentially sees them as a non-threat and so it's kind of like there is this massive problem like at the end of the day this is it's a patriarchal attitude it's a sexist attitude it uh victimizes women uh obviously disproportionately and yet there are these uh in this case specifically the groups of people i'm talking about the activists the journalists who try as much as they can to sometimes use it to further uh, the story, for example, or in the in the case of protesters, to actually physically stop state violence, essentially. It doesn't always work. There are limitations to that. In Syria, we've seen, you know, uh, that n did not really stop necessarily the government, and so on and so forth. But there is this dynamic there and this tension that if uh, you were not a, um, a local journalist, or especially a local women journalist, these are sort of nuances that you may not even see. These women activists themselves are painfully aware of how their bodies are used in society and how their bodies are presented in society. And they're just trying to make the best of it. And they're trying to improve the society, and if that made sense, through that. Of course, I think the word here is tact. I think these yes. women have incredible levels of tact when it comes to... Uh, acknowledging the limitations that they face and the fact that they live in deeply misogynistic and sexist and patriarchal societies, um, but also finding very resourceful ways to uh, 
to rise above that in terms of making change, uh, I think we need to distinguish, you know, activism and journalism mm -hmm. here. I know that they can often overlap in the region, um, but specifically if I were to speak about some of the women in this book, nobody turns away from the fact that they face these limitations, but their preoccupation is with how to use gender to their advantage. Uh, rather than succumbing to the disadvantages associated with being uh, a female in the Arab world. Um, and those disadvantages obviously are rooted in women's rights and so on, um, and patriarchy at large. But what they're trying to do is to tell us that, uh, you know, as a female journalist, I have access to certain spaces that males do not have access to. Therefore, I'm going to enter those spaces and I'm going to tell you these stories that uh, no one else can tell. And I frequently cite the example of Zainal Hayim in, in Syria, mm -hmm. because while she was a journalist in Syria, she accessed some of the most sensitive spaces, such as a gynecological clinic, to tell us stories of women there. And uh, Amir al-Sharif is a Yemeni photojournalist who um, would take her camera into the private homes of women and tell the stories of women and how they were dealing with conflict while their husbands were you know, out fighting that these women were at home um, fighting a, diff a different uh, type of battle, right? And um, I, I constantly feel that the women are so aware of those advantages that uh, we are given a certain um, level of insight that we would never see elsewhere. I mean, even, for example, you mentioned uh, access to militia leaders, mm -hmm. Um, Shamayel al-Nur is a Sudanese journalist in the book who, uh, because she's a woman, was not taken seriously uh, to begin with, with her coverage of what was uh, happening in Sudan. And she, uh, as a result of being a woman, was given access to Musa Hilal, who was the head of the Janjaweed, because she was looked at as non-threatening. Like, oh, let's just let this woman go and interview the head of the Janjaweed, it's not a big deal. So then she writes this incredible um, account of meeting him and then the story that uh, transpired, uh, which was kind of a bombshell story in Sudan at the time that Musa Hidal had uh, political ambitions. Um, no one had written that story previously. And that was a result of her recognizing that she had that advantage. So fine, like it might be viewed as, as a disadvantage, but she's like, well, let me take advantage of that. I'm not, I'm non-threatening, so let me go get this great story. And also, um, Huayda Saad comes to mind. As you know, she writes for the New York Times and she's fully aware in her chapter that because she's a woman, her sources were allowing her to become close to them in a way that no one else would, especially because she was a local woman. She was very close to a man who would become an ISIS fighter and then a man who would become a regime soldier. So we're being told these stories. Um, and I really feel like we have sort of front row seats to, to history here because no one else can get that close to these stories. And that's actually a direct result of the limitations that they were facing or the stereotypes or the, um, the assumptions, the false assumptions that are made because they are women. Um, so I think that this book is quite fascinating because we're getting to hear those stories directly from the women themselves and the behind the scenes that led up to those points in their coverage. Does that answer your question? Yes, yes, absolutely. Thanks. Um, on a on a kind of a more literary level, I guess, can you speak a bit about the the structure of the book? So it's it's organized in five themes: remembrances, crossfire, resilience, exile, and transition. 
can you talk a bit about um, why, for example, these five themes, like what was the thought process behind it? Sure. I think it's quite important to note here that I never, I didn't know what the themes would be when I approached the women, um, the authors in this book. I didn't instruct them in any way to write about any particular subject, which is why I actually say in my introduction, um, I don't project themes of patriarchy onto them. Um, actually, not all of the women wrote about um, anything pertaining to their womanhood or their gender. Mm -hmm. What I wanted them to do was to write whatever story to them felt like the most prominent story in their careers or in their personal lives that they wanted to share. Um, and I think as a result, there was a lot of diversity in the essays. And uh, when they came in, after all 19 essays came in, um, there were certain themes that emerged. So as you said, remembrances um, is, is a section of essays that focuses on the women who have lost something mm -hmm. along the way of their reporting, whether that were people, whether that was people who were dear to them. Um, in one case, it was Anthony Shadid, as we know, Nada Bakri, an exceptional writer. Mm -hmm. um, her, her husband was an incredible journalist who died um, while covering Syria on his way out of Syria. And then um, it's also about women uh, journalists who are recalling some of the coverage um, from years ago. So Hannah Alam, for example, writes about her experience in Iraq many years ago. Um, so that was a sort of a prominent theme of re remembering um, their experiences. And then uh, the second section is Crossfire. So that theme is actually um, uh, sort of a double entendre for the women who have either experienced war um, or lived through it and women who have dual identities. Mm. So a number of women in the book, like myself, uh, as a result of uh, warfare, displacement, exile, forced exile, uh, refugee crisis and so on, uh, have dual identities. So they had to leave their countries of origin or their parents had to leave their countries of origin. Um, and I felt that that was uh, a prominent theme in that a lot of the women talk about having to deal with having that dual identity. And also, I feel it's an important part of being Arab. Unfortunately, so many of us have dual identities, and that's a direct result of um, colonialism, um, forced exile, as I said, you know, in the case of Palestine, mm -hmm. um, Jane Arraf, for example, is Palestinian, but has never lived in Palestine and so on. So um, that was an important theme to cover. And then um, I actually don't know if I'm going in order here. Let me get the book. <laughs> yeah, then there's, there's, resi there's resilience. Yeah, I have it. There's resilience. Yeah. So resilience is actually, this is a theme I would say that's universal. All of the women are resilient. Mm. But these women in particular focus their careers on, you know, rising above the challenges that I spoke about earlier. So, for example, Iman Hilal, who's an Egyptian photojournalist, um, obviously found herself um, struggling to be a photojournalist uh, as a woman um, in Egypt and dealing with, um, with misogyny at all levels, I would say, of her life. It started, she says, you know, the, the disparity she felt as a woman um, uh, as compared to a man started within her own home and then she found it in the workplace, she found it on the streets, but she decided to um, to use her camera to tell the stories of women who were facing um, sexual harassment as 
a woman who herself had faced or experienced sexual harassment um, in the workplace. So that's a very strong theme of resilience. And Emira Sharif, I mentioned her before, similarly, she was exasperated by the coverage of Yemen in mainstream media and felt she wanted to show the resilience of Yemeni women by um, uh, focusing specifically on them and their plight, as I also mentioned earlier. And then um, exile is a strong theme. A lot of the women uh, had to leave their home countries because of the conflicts that they covered and because of the fact that they were journalists um, who faced uh, threats. So Asma al-Hul is one of them. She was a journalist in, in, in uh, Gaza and she had to leave. Um, Hiba Shibani was Libyan and she now lives in exile in Malta. Uh, Lina Sinjab had to leave Syria and uh, so did Zainal Hayim. So that is a prominent theme, um, a, quite a sad one, but very true to, to our story, as you know, as Arabs. And then transition, which focuses on stories of society or industries in transition. So Syria's transition, as told by Zena Karam, who works for the Associated, Associated Press in Beirut. And then Donna Abu Nasser talks about Saudi Arabia. And Rola Khalaf, who is now the editor of the Financial Times, speaks about a changing industry. So those are the overarching themes. I would also say one theme, which I'm, I kind of... It, it's so pervasive that it, it, it could have been a theme for the entire book is guilt. A lot of the women feel a lot of guilt. I'm not sure if you picked up on that as you yeah, were reading. So, but so survivor's guilt, yes. Yeah, guilt about their privilege. You know, everyone feels that they're more privileged than others. And I felt it just came out in such a sort of visceral way in some of the essays, particularly in Natasha Yesbik's essay. Yeah, actually, if that's okay, I'll, I'll, uh, if we can expand a bit on the last part. Uh, yeah, I mean, so I called it survivor's guilt. It's not, uh, I guess that's the general term for it. But yeah, it is guilt that basically everyone I know in my world has it. And it's in one way or another. Uh, the extents vary quite a lot, obviously. But it is it is quite something uh, that even, you know, a woman who was forced out of her home and now, you know, has to had to cross, I don't know how many countries, and now is in one place and obviously in exile even that person can actually feel guilt that she has it better than other people back home, for example. And mm-hmm. have you, because you, you mentioned that you were born in the UK, uh, you worked in Dubai at some point, mm-hmm. in Lebanon. Uh, I, w- I'm, I'm, I think it's a good guess that you, you've also felt this quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, I lived in Lebanon half my life. Yeah. And I think most of my life I have been uh, feeling immense guilt for having had the privilege of not being born in Lebanon Mm -hmm. um, during the civil war. And when I say privilege, I really mean the privilege of a passport. Yes, yes, Um, absolutely. I have a Western passport. Uh, I, I have been given opportunities other people would only dream of, and I'm very cognizant of that. And in a way, have constantly felt that I want to tap into my Arab identity and to write about the Arab world and to commit my career to telling the story of the Arab world um, because I I wasn't born there mm. and because I have those privileges. Um, and it's it's something I also dealt with when I edited this book because I felt constantly that I was dealing with women who had experienced such severe trauma Um and I was sitting, you know, editing this book from the comfort of my flat in Hackney, 
you know, and I wasn't experiencing or witnessing what they were experiencing and witnessing. And therefore, I almost felt like a fraud. Mm. You know, how can I really be telling the story of the region when I'm not there? And that's why actually I, I very much refrained from speaking about myself um, and my own uh, experience as a journalist in a, a standalone chapter. All I did was give an introduction that focused mostly on others um, because I don't feel that I have that, uh, that same insight and that same experience, even though I was a journalist in Lebanon for many years. Mm-hmm. Um, I just feel that the distance um, for me was something I had to contend with continually. And at some point, actually, I got in touch with a bunch of news wires and I wanted to like apply for a job to become a correspondent in Baghdad. Like I wanted to go literally from my flat in Hackney to like to to the front lines, you know, mm. um, because I felt that that was my duty. But then you kind of realize, I think, that you can work with your platform and your privilege um, from wherever you are um, and you can commit to telling the story of the Arab world in different ways, you know, whether or not it's a podcast like like the one that you have or um, handing the mic over to other people um, from the region um, who could tell the story in a way that you can. And that's what I was trying to do with this book um, was to give all these women um, that space to tell their stories and also to to highlight the importance of local journalists and local stories. Um, that was my way of dealing with the guilt, um, was recognizing my privilege, but at the same time, recognizing the advantages that I have as someone who understands the media landscape in both the West and in the Arab world and, um, using the contacts and the resources I had to put this book together. That was the, that was how I dealt with it. I poured all of my guilt and energy into this project. And in a way, I think it it turned out well. <laughs> I hope so. I no, hope it so. did. It did. absolutely did. Um, one um, this might be like a bit more. I don't know. I don't know. I actually don't know how to how to uh, describe this question. But um, like an anthology like this one, or like the Good Immigrant for that matter, for me always feels that uh, whether in the literal sense or in the more I don't know metaphorical sense, it's kind of like the, there's translation going on. So. Mm-hmm. And the good immigrant I actually haven't checked, but I think most people who all all of those who wrote wrote it in English and the book was published in English. Uh, I may be wrong about this, but let's assume that. Whereas in our men, our women on the gun, I think there was you. Uh, you had mentioned once that it's like a third, a third, uh, third wrote it in English, third wrote it in Arabic. Oh no, mm-hmm. like a third had English as the first language, a third not uh, the first language, more or less something like that. Uh, I'll let you expand yes. on this. Um, yeah, can we reflect a bit on what does translation like? How does translation work in your? I'm not like so. You functioned there as an editor, but you had to work with translation, obviously, with the world of translation. Uh, I think you mentioned that your mom is actually the one who uh, translated yes. some of the or all of them, actually, the Arabic ones. Yes, she translated the Arabic essays. Yeah. Amazing. Okay, so okay, so I'll just ask you that question then, like how. What are some of your reflections and thoughts on the the trans, translating these pieces, those that were translated from Arabic into English, and the pieces in English that um, you know maybe were written by someone whose first language isn't English, or and you know is are there like additional challenges, additional uh, benefits, mm-hmm. maybe some nuances that might be lost or gained, and and so on and so forth. 
Yeah, I love that you're asking me this question because it was a challenge. I would say, firstly, literal translation mm. was a challenge indeed, because from a technical standpoint, you know, the, the essays would be 6,000 words in Arabic, but then they would clock in at 12,000 words in English <laughs> yeah. because, because it's so hard to capture the nuance of what's being written. But my mother is such an expert at that. And we worked together to figure out um, how to whittle down the essays uh, in such a way that didn't compromise the nuance. So we were very cognizant of that. Um, so, so I would say, yes, in terms of the, um, the essays that were translated from Arabic to English, um, nuance was, was an issue, but, we, but me and my mother together worked closely with the authors to ensure that whatever we were cutting out of the essay was not sacrificing the nuance of the story that they were telling. I do want to say that we were not preoccupied with the notion of a Western reader. Mm. That was never top of mind for me, and it was never something that I conveyed to the authors. I never said to them, hey, we need to bear in mind that there's a Western reader who's going to read this. Like They're going to, they're going to buy it from a bookshop in Brooklyn, and we need to be thinking about them. That was not even, um, that never came up, actually. Um, what what I was concerned with was clarity of the story and the essay itself uh, and the narrative arc and so on. But when it comes to the women who uh, um, speak Arabic uh, primarily and who know very little English uh, and who wanted to write in English because it was just their own choice, I worked very closely with them to ensure that their story was clear um, in some cases, that involved heavy editing. In some cases, I had to ask them to flesh out certain um, themes or ideas to fill in certain gaps. But I think because they trusted me and because we were so close, we I actually bonded a lot with some of these women. We were able to work together in, in such a way that allowed for their stories to come through. Um, irrespective of there being that language barrier. In terms of, you know, the women who speak English as a first language, um, which I would say, yes, that's roughly a third of the authors in the book. Um, I think that there was a, a lot more leeway for them to be experimental with the way that they were writing their essays. So if you mm. look at Natasha Yazbek's essay, uh, which is an exceptional essay, she she takes a lot more risk, I would say, with the format of the essay and the the uh, the tenses that she used and how she jumps back and forth from the present to the past. Um, and I think that some of the women were more lyrical, the women who are comfortable with their English. So the fact that there are actually these, I love that you put that in third. So women who wrote in Arabic, women who, um, who chose to write in English, even though it's not their first language, and then women who are native speakers of English. The fact that I had that diversity um, actually allows for a much more complex product and a much better read, in my opinion, because you get a real range of voices there and a real range of writing styles. And I'm very pleased to, to, to see that my book is, or our book is being taught in universities in some creative writing classes, because I think that that range of voices and range of writing styles has really been a prominent aspect of this book that, that many people find compelling. So they're not coming to this book and feeling like this is just a standard essay. Um, there's a quite, quite a wide range there. Absolutely. It's very good to hear that it's being taught in universities as well. Um, yeah, very pleased. <laughs> um, is there anything that you felt that uh, I could have expanded upon or like we could have expanded upon, but didn't really have much time to? Uh, and if not, I'll just leave you the 
final notes, so to speak, of like general reflections on the book, and maybe if you can talk about like future projects that you have, or you know, up mm-hmm. to you. Uh, I do actually really want to talk about uh, the fact that many of these women um, are like myself of a dual nationality and many of them work for Western media organizations. This was uh, something that I thought about a lot, something that came up um, in the process of of, uh, editing and then marketing this book. Uh, I felt at odds in a way with myself because while I do believe that just because you might be an Arab who has been um, exposed to the West in a way that local journalists have not, or let's say you have the privilege of a Western passport, or you work for the New York Times uh, versus like founding Mada Masr, uh, like the excellent Lina Atallah has, I, I felt maybe that, that would um, compromise the, or be perceived as compromising the authenticity of the book. And I think that um, I actually lost a lot of sleep over that because I felt, you know, perhaps I should have had, you know, 19 essays that were written in Arabic and that could only tell the very local story that, for example, um, you wouldn't find uh, from a woman who writes for the New York Times. Mm. Um, So that is something that I thought about a lot. At the same time, I think that the range of stories there is still important. It is actually important to tell the story uh, of Natasha Yezbik, who works or worked for the AFP and who struggled with the fact that she... Uh, is both uh, Western and Arab and Lebanese. That is part of the broader story of the Arab world, as you know, especially now with the refugee crisis, as we see more and more people um, being born um, with with these dual identities. And um, I also think there there could have been space for, for um, more uh, essays that were written only by women who work specifically for local publications, um, but perhaps for a future project. Um, I also worried a lot about um, representation. Did, you know, did I not represent the Gulf um, mm. as, as much as I could have or, uh, or the Maghrib as much as I could have? But I, I think it's just so difficult because there are so many variables and so many different moving parts to take into account. But I do want to say that those are things that I thought a lot about. And I'm still very proud of how the book turned out because what I really think it does is it tells the diverse story of the region um, it can always be told better in other ways, of course, but it's still, you know, it still tries to capture um, that diversity and um, I'm I'm quite proud of it even though there are things that I feel I could have done differently in retrospect and in hindsight but I think that's quite natural especially for a perfectionist <laughs> <laughs> I do genuinely uh, I highly recommend the book I will obviously link uh, to all the necessary links in the blog post and in the description and Zahra I really want to thank you a lot for your time thank you so much